Elaine Kalman Naves was born in Hungary and grew up in Budapest, London, and Montreal. She was for many years literary columnist for the Gazette in Montreal and is the author of eight books, among them the award-winning memoirs Journey to Vaya by McGill Queen's Press and Shoshana's Story, published by McClellan and Stewart. And she lives in Montreal, where we are today to discuss Robert Weaver, godfather of Canadian literature. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you very much for having me, Nigel. Why did you write this book? It sort of begged to be written. Um, it just did. Uh, Bob had, has had such a, an amazing career and was such a wonderful, wonderful man. And he did so much for Canadian literature. But I wrote the book uh, because I, I met him almost by serendipity. And um, he was such a nice guy. Which is what pretty well everyone said, right? I never have heard any single person say a bad thing about Bob. Yeah. And, and, and writers are, are not known for holding back about uh, their negative opinions. He was just, he, he, was, he, was, he was a generous and very, very astute and very smart man and mm -hmm. a great editor who loved nurturing writers. I wrote the book because, um, well, the opportunity arose. I was asked to do um, an ideas documentary about his life. In the course of doing that, I interviewed some of the greats of Canadian literature. Some of them were gone already. Some of those whom he had discovered were gone, but there were many. The greatest Canadian writers all owe something to him, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, the book has, in some ways, is a, is a kind of a scrapbook with, with photographs and, and letters, which are almost like testimonials to him. They're not actual testimonials. People aren't writing about him. They're writing to him, but just the love that uh, he, he elicited in people. Mm -hmm. So I did, this document, I did this documentary in the course of which I, I, I interviewed many people, people who'd worked with him as well as people who, who owed a lot to him. And then I had all this material. And um, I didn't really feel like writing a, a big official biography of Bob because I, essentially I'm a creative writer and I'm a, a journalist, I'm not a scholar. I mentioned the idea to Vehicle Press, to Simon Dardick at Vehicle Press, and he thought it was a great idea. And so we went with this sort of scrapbook approach of uh, a, a text and then uh, interview material and then all these sort of graphics that would kind of flesh out the mm -hmm. story for readers. Well, why don't we get into his life then? Where, uh, he was born in Niagara Falls, is that right? He was born in Niagara Falls and grew up, grew up in Niagara Falls for the first years of his life. His father was uh, a physician, a family doctor, and his, his mother was a homemaker. And his father died when Bob was very young, uh, I think maybe around the age of 12. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, the big formative event of his life, both because he lost a, a father whom he really hadn't had a, a great chance to get to know because of the nature of his father's work and because he, 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 was, yeah, he was a boy still. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's interesting. Many men who are very ambitious and who have achieved a great deal have fathers who they've lost in early life. It is interesting. So, so from one point of view, just losing the father. But the yeah. other reason why it was such a formative thing was because they didn't have any money and they couldn't continue to live in Niagara Falls. And they were the poor relations who, who sort of descended on um, Bob's father's sisters in, in Toronto and sort of became the poor relatives who lived with uh, the, the aunts or in the same building as the aunts. Yeah, they were bouncing around from the third floor to the first exactly, floor. Exactly, wherever there was, because it was, it, it became, I think, a kind of a boarding house. It was a three-story three walk-up in the annex. Mm-hmm. And whenever uh, rooms became available, because the tenants left, so that's where, that's where they, they moved to. And, they, and Bob liked being on the top floor, uh, especially in the summer, because it got hot and they could sleep out on the veranda. So he switched. They, they, you know, that was that was a big up, upheaval, and he wasn't looking forward to it, as I uh, as I seem to remember. And then he he settled in. He really settled in Toronto because the world of books was so important to him, and he had been a reader from a very young age. Mm-hmm. So this would have been uh, what, around when? Well, it was right right during the Depression. Okay. Uh, it happened in the worst possible time. I know that they moved to Toronto in, in 1933. Okay. And so that's like the pits, and they didn't really have any money. What's, one of the things that's interesting is that Bob was a very egalitarian kind of guy. For a, a man from his times, he was absolutely not sexist at all. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it, he, this was a house full of women, so, you know, obviously he's comfortable around them, or no, I think he was pretty comfortable around them. He was very comfortable around them, but what happened was that the first, the, his early childhood was under a kind of patriarchy because his father sort of was, you know, the, the father. He was the traditional kind of father figure. Across the street from where they lived on Main Street in Niagara Falls lived the geriatric grandfather who was quite the force, uh, and he had, there was, I think, a daughter looking after him, and, and also a, a, there was a grandmother as well. The grandfather was very deaf, and uh, he, was a, he was a writer, he was a local historian. He really did, he wrote books, and he was... He literary. Was, he was literary. Yeah. He was literary on, on that side, on the, uh, the, the maternal side. And then uh, when they moved to Toronto, the other aunties, Bob's father's sisters... One of them was a, a professional writer, Emily, and uh, she wrote sort of uh, books about empire and, you know, sort of moral kind of texts that were for children. Uh, there were four spinster sisters, mm-hmm. and she, she kept them in funds. She was the, 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 the breadwinner. So there was that sense of, of, of being able to live by the pen, of, 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 liking, of liking, always loving books. There was, and there was the patriarchy in, on the one hand and the matriarchy on the other hand. And he was very sort of comfortable around these ladies. And he was a, he was a, he was a total bookworm. He said something along the lines that he didn't really, he was, he was read to, but he was independent and he wanted, he was aching for the chance to read for himself and to read his own books uh, for himself. And because he said that was, the understanding was that... Uh, Reading was just part of being human. That if he had not shown an interest in books, that would have it, this would have been really, or an interest in reading, it would have been really frowned upon because everybody 
everybody read. So he, he, uh, he lived in Toronto throughout the Depression and the 30s. Anything happened during that period that was uh, formative? Well, he, 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 went to, he went to high school. He wasn't a, good, he wasn't a particularly good student. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was called Nor uh, North Toronto Collegiate, something like that. It was a good school. But he wasn't a particularly good student. There was no money. There was no question of him going to university, and he got a job in a bank. This would have been, what, when he was late teens? Yeah, in his late, when he graduated from high school. He, he had sort of a, a kind of a job that it had something to do with bank drafts and going to different uh, businesses uh, in that area. And he was always interested in people from different backgrounds. He didn't ever talk about, like, what particularly titles had been important to him as a, as a, as a child, but he said, I always like to read about exotic places, different places. Uh, and so meeting, say, Jewish merchants and, uh, you know, getting into harangues with them gave him much uh, enjoyment and added to his the broadening of his natural education without formal education. It's and funny then, that he would get that experience at a bank of all places. Yeah, but he, but he, still, he, 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 was, he reached he was, out. He and, was, yeah. The bank was, re, was sending him to right. do these things, and, and, so he, and he liked it. He liked it. It's mm -hmm. funny, uh, what's interesting is that Bob, by nature, I think, was a shy man, but he was also an outgoing person. You know, give him something to do uh, with people, and he enjoyed it. He liked, he liked it. So the other thing that happened in that period is that he enlisted in, I think it was 1941, and he never served. He made uh, great jokes at his own expense about... Uh, not being able to fire at anything that would have been the enemy, uh, meaning that he would be perhaps quite capable of doing <laughs> the other. This is the wrong thing with, mm. with, 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 a, with a firearm. And he, he, he was in the army, and because he was in the army, and I, I think he demobbed in 1944, and there was already this uh, Canadian equivalent to the GI. Bill, yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. and so you had the potential, uh, the opportunity to go to university, which is what he then ended up doing, and being a more mature student mm -hmm. than he would otherwise have been. A bit more serious then. More, much more serious mm -hmm. about things, and yeah. I really, really soaked it all up. He went to university college, he met Northrop Fry. Did uh, he study under Fry? They knew each other because Bob wrote for it, or edited it. Mm -hmm. There was... There was the Varsity, mm -hmm. and then there was another one that, that was the, the, uh, the one that he edited was the paper of, of University College okay. itself. Morley Callahan was lecturing. He wasn't a professor, but he was lecturing. He was a man about campus, so that he became an influence uh, early on. And, and, and Fry was not a friend, but uh, well, perhaps he became one. I, mm -hmm. I'm, More I'm of a, a yes, mentor, a mentor, mentor, mentor. Men, someone, yeah. someone who who sorely approved of him, particularly when at an early age, Bob began to contribute for publications like the Canadian Forum and uh, other places in the states as well. He, he yeah, he wasn't anti-American, was no, he? No, that's no. a point that a, a number of people make in your book. They, he, I was absolutely not anti-American. Uh, he grew up in Niagara Falls, and he said, mm -hmm. like, when you went across to the other side, it wasn't appreciably different. Mm -hmm. And uh, as much as the educa Canadian education, Canadian literary education had been based on largely English texts, 
uh, he was always drawn to the American writers. Anyone in particular you recall? Or no? Uh, no, I don't think he, he, he actually spoke about this to me, but I know he, I think he wrote for the nation, uh, uh, political pieces about Canada, mm. uh, you know, like... So not would, just literary then? No, no, mm. no, 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 and uh, not at all. And he didn't know uh, what he was going to be and do. So what happened... He was studying English though, was he? I don't. I, I'm not sure if he he was he was certainly doing English because he he was the ed editor of this uh, magazine yeah. mm -hmm. and which which uh, published some very uh, like some really controversial kind of fiction. It was called the Box Lunch, which was about abortion oh, yes. and a, a, like a, a very uh, gruesome story about abortion at a time when you could not even say the word abortion in polite society. And this in the college newspaper, it was a bit of a brouhaha afterwards, but he said, you know, nothing that didn't settle down afterwards very soon. Well, he, uh, he was known for taking chances, right? Yes, he, was. he loved to mix it up yeah. he, he, and he loved doing new things. And when he graduated from college, somehow there was, he found out that there was an opening at the CBC and he applied and he got the job. And that's, again, probably because of his personality, do you think? Or did he know somebody? He said, or? no, I, I think he called it, um, you know, an, an accidental career. And let me sort of refresh my memory about how that all went down. Oh yes, it was called the undergrad, the, the, the newspaper, the, 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 the magazine of uh, University College. Yes, uh, that's right. Because yes, he yes. he joined the staff of the varsity. Yeah, and he edited the undergrad. He must. I I I guess he was studying English. You know, I I, I can't remember. He was certainly like he was very busy with the the literary culture, mm -hmm. literary scene at the university. He was friends with James Rainey and Henry Kreisel. Uh, who's also, you know, from Europe and, and Jewish. And they, they, these sort of unusual for the times characters uh, would be totally the kind of people that Bob was interested in. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, about the CBC, let me just see. Okay, there it is. So, he, yes, exactly. So the, about the anti-Americanism, you know, he said, when you went across the bridge from Niagara Falls, Ontario, to Niagara Falls, New York, it didn't seem a very strange thing to do, and it didn't seem as if we were going to a foreign country. Mm -hmm. So he actually thought that he might he, he might have gone to the States to... I thought I was going to be a magazine writer, a critic maybe. I don't think the CBC was probably going to be my first choice. But I listened to the CBC and I knew enough people who had connections to know something about what it was about. So that was it. What happened was... In fact, he doesn't remember, he didn't remember when I talked to him, the chain of circumstances that actually brought him to the attention of a guy called Eugene Hallman, who was the network radio program director mm -hmm. and who would become his chief mentor initially. Sorry, I have to correct yeah. myself. Okay. So it was here. The man who was, became his immediate supervisor was Frank, P Frank Pierce. And Frank Pierce was a, a, a mentor figure to him and helped him in his early career. So he says he, he used the word accidentally to account for his entry at the CBC. And, it was good and luck. Good luck. And it was a time when the CBC was sort of ripe for new things. So he pretty quickly, I mean, he wasn't hired to, to develop a literary 
literary programming and was he? It or was. I think that he was given a 15-minute uh, niche for readings on a Friday evening, and it was called Canadian Short Stories. It had been designed a couple of years earlier to be a market for Canadian short stories. There were that many of them mm. at the time. And he decided that he was going to develop that, and, and he did. And then at the same time, I think he was also given another another slot. I think it was called Critically Speaking, which was also a sort of magazine-style program of arts reviews. Mm-hmm. And so he had these two to work with, and he began looking around and actively soliciting, not waiting for people to send him stuff, but getting in touch with people and telling people that you know to send stories to him. And I like this here. It's, it's uh, this is uh, this is on the CBC chapter early early in chapter two. You write early on, for instance, he noticed that better known writers were sending him work of mediocre quality. He realized that part of the problem was money. Professional writers were sending their best pieces to American magazines because the CBC paid so little. He immediately raised the fees for a fifteen-minute short story. From 35 to a more competitive $50. Soon he was receiving decent material from the likes of Ross, W.O. Mitchell, and Ethel Wilson. Yeah. So there's an early instance of what? Well, early instance of, of treating writers seriously, of treating them like professionals. Even when it came to later on in his career also, like, you know, when they started uh, the Tamarack, he and others started the Tamarack Review, it wasn't uh, a foregone conclusion that you would pay writers, and certainly he and the other editors pooled their money to to create this magazine, and out of this sort of nothing, they were right from the get-go paying writers because it was a, a, a point of principle. Bob like, he kept on saying he liked writers. As a, as a writer, I'm not sure like why that would be the case. Yeah, some, you know, some, writers, <laughs> some writers are wise well, they can be nice, but they can, they can be awfully hard to, to get along with, have big egos. But he, yeah. he liked writers, and he believed in treating writers properly. Well, Morley Callahan said, said oh, no, sorry, uh, Barry Callahan, uh, Morley's son, said in your book, he was a shy man dealing with egomaniacs. Right, that's right, that's right. And and big personalities, and I don't think they took advantage of him, mm. but I think that he was very accepting. Bob was very accepting. He was very accepting in, in, in terms of the type of broad interests he had, all different kinds of writing. Very, very open to some, you know, like, like with a box social, very, very, some very weird stuff. But he also had... Excellent, excellent taste. That's what almost universally, again, the people in your book say. They, they talk about that. And uh, speaking of which, he nurtured, shaped, and sustained Alice Monroe. So was he the first to really recognize her brilliance? I think so. I think so. She was writing during this period when... Um, Canadian, what was it called? The Canadian Short Stories? Yeah, the, Canadian, the, the, short the, stories, yeah. Canadian Short Stories was airing. Uh, so she sent him two, two, two stories. I don't know if she typed the stories, but the letters that she sent him were in longhand. And he uh, liked one of the stories, and he didn't like the other one. The, the story that he did like, he told her she had to cut because, very respectfully, but 
because of the time slot, because of the the, the fifteen minute length mm. of the program, yeah, story couldn't be more than twenty uh, two thousand one hundred words, twenty one hundred words. So he suggested how she should cut it, and he wrote back and said, "We'd like to uh, air this on our." June the first program. I'm not sure what the date was when he wrote this to her. He wrote it to her on May 18th, and this is all happening by snail mail. So he sends it back to her and and expects her to send it back in time. And I don't. It doesn't arrive in time because uh, she doesn't receive it until later. Uh, but then she she writes back to him and she is a total professional and says, you know, uh, I made some cuts, but I made the cuts this way. I, I totally rewrote the first two pages, and then I, I did something else, and what do you think? So uh, the story aired, but the, um, the other story that he didn't like, which is called, the, I think, the, the Widower, he told her that it was too understated, and, he, and uh, what did he say? It was really quite lovely what he, what he said about it. Um, yes. Um, as for the other story, The Widower, I think that here you have rather failed to rise above somewhat commonplace and tedious material. And he tells her that this is not a very exciting story. And That's, he doesn't, in fact, she, Alice Monroe, says that he was blunt. Yes. Which is a good thing, obviously. Yeah, very good, because, but, but it's not only that he tells her that it's studious, but it's the way he then makes suggestions. I feel that you are trying hard to use words with care and to present your material with real integrity. And I certainly hope that you will continue writing and that we will be given an opportunity to, some, to read some later stories of yours. Sometimes, however, I think you might consider the advisability of letting yourself go a bit more when the material seems to merit this kind of treatment. Yeah, lovely, isn't it? It's very diplomatic and But it's also that let, let, he praises her for her understatement yeah. and, and says elsewhere that you know a lot of writers could learn from you in this area of understatement, but sometimes you have to let yourself go. Mm-hmm. And that I think is must for a young writer the encouragement along with the the correction, but the correction is couched in such a way as to lead her to like a better place in her writing. Yeah, it's like extraordinary. It's know? very respectful. Too. Yes, yes. And this is Robert Fulford talking about it. Yes, I think that his ability to judge literature and emphasize in any given writer what they could do and what they couldn't do and maybe subtly or directly tell them, don't go down that path, go down this path. I think that's what an editor does, and I think Weaver knew how to do it. You know, nobody taught him how to do this, okay? But he seemed to have a knack for it right from the beginning. He's a, he's a young man here when he's telling Alice Monroe. She's young too, she's but young too. still. She's, she's a little bit, she's just a bit younger than him, mm-hmm. or a few years younger than him, uh, than he is. Than he was. Well, he's he's a couple of years into this job. He's yeah. like he's he's thirty. He's he, he's thirty over here, mm-hmm. and he's he, he called himself a, a a cultural bureaucrat. He always sort of said, "Oh no, I just did my job. I I, I you know I provided programming and so on." But he was yeah. so much more than mm-hmm. that. So much more than that. It's interesting uh, about Alice Monroe. There there are a couple of other key people uh, 
editors in her life. Yes, uh, Doug Gibson. Doug Gibson and, yeah. and uh, John Metcalf. Yes. But they came along a bit later, I guess. Yes. She was, she was much more launched in, in her career. Mm. Bob was her first editor. Yeah. And, and the person okay. who found her. I mean, it wasn't, she was not alone in the, you know, I mean, he, he found Mordecai Richler and I, Leonard Cohn sang a song on his program, Anthology, in 1958, which is well before we were accustomed to hearing the voice of Leonard Cohn. Singing, yeah, no. singing, the singing voice of Leonard Cohn. <laughs> right, right. What's really, I think, impressive is that he takes this uh, uh, Canadian short stories uh, from the radio and turns it into an anthology in 1952. That was his first anthology. And really, he's he's one of the great Canadian anthologists. Yes. Bob would always see opportunities. And it was just... um, And he would always like something new, a, a challenge. He wanted to raised the profile of, of literature, and he wanted to, to collect up the, 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 all the stories that he was getting on the radio. And, um, and, and then he always wanted to build on that. Well, uh, and in 1956, he got uh, 70 friends to put up $25 as founding subscribers to the... Uh, Tamarack. Tamarack, Yeah. Another, you know, another really important literary magazine, Canadian literary. It, magazine. it was the first really important Canadian literary, mm-hmm. and never, mm-hmm. and never got beyond being a small, you know, a, a small, a, a small magazine. I think it, the subscription at its top was like two thousand people. It, it was a lovely, beautifully designed, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bill Toy. And uh, I know Frank Newfeld did a few covers, and Alan Fleming did some covers. Uh, Elizabeth Cleaver did some, you know, like they're, they're beautiful covers, but great content, you mm-hmm. know. Everybody who's anybody in during the period that is like the beginning of the flowering of Canadian literature contributed to, to the anthology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I, as I said before, and were paid decent rates for. for and it, was, it wasn't just uh, literary. Material. It was a a, a a general interest magazine with. Didn't other, know that. Yeah. It, it, well, at least I hope I'm. Sorry. <laughs> at least I'm. I, I believe that there were other kinds of. Uh, there was there was uh, there was material there that wasn't only literary. Li- 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 yeah, literature. Uh, Timothy Finley's first ever story uh, appeared in the Tamarack. First ever. The, the first story he ever wrote. Yeah. And, and I think maybe in its in, that was in its. Very first in the very first issue, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, is that right? Okay. An eclectic, imaginative blending of prose, poetry, essays, and reviews. And uh, lasted some twenty-five years. And it was—I mean, it was a real cottage industry. They—they—they they, they wrote it around, you know. I think it was uh, Ivan Owens's uh, dining room, and and stuffed envelopes and and carted it about to department stores in those days. Department stores had, uh, yeah, had book sections, had, had yeah. book sections, and they were, they were it was they were it was a prestigious place to be. And there's a story about uh, how uh, Gwendolyn how, how the career of Gwendolyn McEwen started because uh, when Bob was delivering uh, Tamarack reviews to Eaton's College Street, which was uh, I think their sort of upscale store. In the book department, somebody said, there's a lady called Mrs. McEwen in another department, and please go over and say hello to her. 
So he went over to say hello, and Mrs. McEwen had a daughter who wanted to write, and Mrs. McEwen wanted, they were not from that kind of background at all. Mrs. McEwen wanted to know what it would be all about, and could perhaps he talk Gwen out of <laughs> wanting to be a writer, and so that's how his, that's how he became acquainted with Gwendolyn McEwen. Well, he really got his hands dirty, didn't he? He actually delivered the magazines for crying it, out loud! It wow, was, it was hard work. Yeah, and it was, and, work. And it was all they, volunteer. And they, yes, and they didn't have cars. They'd take it like they they they'd get a lift from somebody, or they'd they'd go by TTC, and these things were heavy. Yeah. He said, watching the development of writers and the development of the modern short story has been the most rewarding experience of my, in my editorial career. And Alice Munro said, giving us what we needed most, his serious attention, his reasonable hopes, a real market. So he found the stories, he encouraged the writing of them, and he brought them to the attention of Canadians. And you know, it, 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 it was there was a synergy between the Tamarack Review and the program Anthology, which which grew out of Canadian short stories. Which was, you know, Anthology became a very very successful and, uh, yeah. program and one of the longest running programs on CBC Radio One. And they and it enjoyed audiences of thirty to fifty thousand. That's right. Uh, each it, week. Each week. You, this is where you would get to know these people first. Many people. You know, listen. Uh, I think uh, a very early story of Mordecai Richler's appear- was, uh, I'm not sure now whether it was on Canadian short stories or on an anthology, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it, was, uh, it was called The Secret of the Kugel. <laughs> <laughs> and there are there, uh, some very, uh, very cute letters from Mordecai to, to Bob. Uh, about uh, when when Bob used to visit the various uh, different locations in Canada because he di- he didn't stay put in in Toronto he'd go that was another wonderful thing wasn't it he actually traveled well, he had a budget of course he had but a budget traveled all over the place all over the place because writers didn't have the budget to go to him mm-hmm. and uh, his earliest boss Frank Pierce uh, that we mentioned before told him you know. Uh, you're not to think of Toronto as being the center of the universe, something that Toronto might want to think about today. Uh, you, you know, there are writers all over this large country, and uh, they are in, at risk of being isolated. And uh, so you go, and when you go to the the CBC studio in Vancouver or or, or Halifax, do not act like uh, as as if you are the guy who's come to show them how it should be done. Yeah. Because they know how to do things too, yeah. and do not get them to have their backs up. I don't think that Bob would have done that anyway. He took all of this under advisement, and it confirmed him in his in, his, in the spirit in which he, I think, norm, naturally and normally was evolving anyway. Well, he sought out Alden Nolan just uh, in, in the Maritimes. That's right. Me. Yes, yes. And there weren't writers' festivals or even po- poetry readings really going on that, you know, in these, in these years. They were, there were. This was it. There, there were, but they were few and far between, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, you, 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 you did have things as a, like the very famous one in Toronto. The name slips, sure. okay. uh, slips my mind right now, but it was, you had events and you did have small magazines uh, already existing. 
the Tamarack Review came as some of the, some of the bigger small magazines were just folding, and so I, it, it, it's almost as if it was all meant to happen. But mm. Bob made it happen. In the book, and the book is Robert Weaver, Godfather of Canadian Literature by Elaine Kalman Naves, published by Vehicle Press. You you uh, you interview, and there are interviews with a variety of different different authors who were uh, connected uh, to Robert Weaver or affected by by what he did. Uh, Margaret Atwood said he was very curious about people, always wanted to meet them, was a great big gossip, very difficult to dislike him. Most people on the top you tend to loathe, but it was impossible to loathe him. Everybody was eager to be interviewed about Bob, but the one, the person that I mm. found most striking because she really doesn't like to be interviewed, is very reclusive. It was very hard to get an interview with Alice Monroe if you're going to be interviewing her about Alice Monroe. I wrote. I got her. I can't remember how I got her address, but it was it wasn't difficult to obtain from from the publisher. And I wrote her, and I got a phone call back like two days after I sent the, the, the letter and she said I'm very eager to be interviewed because it's about Bob and so that just tells you uh, but you know Alistair MacLeod, Robert Fulford, the people who worked on the, um, the Tamac Review with him, mm -hmm. Kildare Dobbs, Bill Toy, everybody was eager to 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 talk, uh, Eric Friesen, who who worked with him at the CBC. Eric Friesen was on radio too. Everybody wanted to talk about him to pay tribute. To, and and Bob was still alive when this yeah, was happening. Yeah. It wasn't this wasn't uh, meant to be, you know, uh, something uh, a tribute for after he was gone. As it happened, it came out just before he died. It's nice that he was able to read it. Then. He was able to read it and mm -hmm. I, one of the nicest things that anybody has ever said to me was his 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 wife Audrey said um, Bob read the book and he said she did a good job. Oh good. So I felt really you know he, he really didn't want he didn't want to do this. When I told when I when I let him know that I was going to be doing this he said sure 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 come along yes yes that's fine. But when I arrived uh, on his doorstep, he he was so non-committal. He was so not didn't want to talk about himself. Didn't did he? want no. to talk about his cat Abby, you know, <laughs> and how she was went around smelling the flowers and and so on. And I had one interview with him, the first interview, and I thought. Oh, I don't know. You know, what am I going to get out of this what, stone? I, right? This yeah. is not going to happen. This yeah. is, and so then I turned up the next time, the following day, because I, I went to, to, to Toronto to be there for like for a week to do interviews, and yeah. I was hoping like to do these long interviews. He he was old. Uh, he was and frail. Yeah. Um, he was in his mid his mid to late eighties. When I came the second time and I showed up. I think he just decided, you know what, she's not gonna, she's not gonna leave me alone. Good, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> so he just decided to make the best of it. So yes, there's a chapter covering that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Those interviews. I like what Alice Monroe said, uh, giving advice to young writers. She said, write a few really good short things, uh, so that you can get them anthologized. 
good practical advice, mm -hmm. isn't it? Except yeah. that it's very hard to do. Writing a you know a very good short thing may be what what what, what comes easily to Alice Munro, but a very good sh tight short story is not the easiest thing to write. But th th there are correlations made between the fact of Bob Weaver's shows on the short story and the fact that Canadians are known for the short story form. Yeah. Is it the chicken or the egg here? I think it's I think it's the fact of having a market to to write for in that format. I, I think it encouraged many people. I would also call him very twinkly. Twinkly, yes. And others others commented on the on the chuckle, because it was a very rich chuckle. And everybody commented on the pipe and, mm -hmm. and, and all the rituals around the the, the pipe. Uh, and some people commented on the drinking, which he held very well, but like there was at Bob's parties, uh, Bob's production parties in all these different outposts of the CBC, at the end of them all there would be a, a great big huge party at which... Uh, um, it's kind of mandatory around writers, isn't it? Well, I don't know, it was mandatory around Bob and everybody had a good time. Uh, Bob Fulford identifies his uh, quality of listening, which was unusual. Did you, did you experience well, that? Well, I didn't know him in that kind of way. I, I knew him towards the end of his career, and I knew him in the context of the interviews in which I encouraged him to speak and not so much to listen. Yeah, but I think yeah. that it is the hallmark of very smart people to not just be carrying on and filling the air with your wisdom. He would be listening to see what the other party was about, what was important to that person. I mean, I don't know that he would, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were certain people who had an agenda, clearly, and uh, there were some very funny stories about how certain writers would inundate him with uh, material, and he once wrote to Al Purdy, thank you very much, we have enough of your poems for the, for, for the, for the time being, lay off, mm -hmm. basically, and almost in that kind of, uh, of, of language. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I think that Robert Fulford would know, he would know him well, and if, he would know better than me about that. Uh, Fulford also talks about the building of, a, of the Canadian literary community, and he identifies... Robert Weaver, along with Malcolm Ross, George Woodcock, and uh, Jack McClellan. Yeah. As sort of the key... Very important figures. Yeah. yeah, very important figures. The other thing that, that he did was to exert an upward pressure on standards. He could tell a poor story from one... He could very easily tell a story that was not up to standard, and that was the, the issue even with, he would, did not publish those more prominent writers at the beginning who were sending him their second and third rate stuff, mm. he, you know. He, he, ha, he had standards, and I think it's, it's something that both editors must do and, and, and critics must do as well, you know, as when you're, when you're reviewing a, a book for a publication, as I frequently did for the Montreal Gazette, you know, the temptation could be there to say nice things about a book if it, because you knew somebody. And I, I never held to that. I, not, I, 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 never, I didn't like dissing uh, a writer, and I, there are ways of being critical. But 
you you owe it to your audience mm -hmm. to to be honest to be honest yeah. because because if you tell them a, a book is good and it isn't they're going to think oh well you know i guess she thinks this is good so maybe this is what passes for good well i don't think i want to read any like Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't trust her. Anymore. I don't trust her, or or is this really is this really good? I don't know. It, uh, I I think that the the, the question of, of of an editorial standard, as much as a critical standard, is is very important. It's it's basic. You owe it to your reader to uh, to uphold standards and values in literature and everything else. And he was influential enough to. to raise the the standard across the board i guess well i don't you know i think that nobody likes a, a, a rejection letter but there are some things that are going to be your better work and sometimes it's not clear to you as the writer which is your your better work it's it's not fun to turn down somebody but it's your job i think just by having a, a high quality program and having increasingly people who could rise to the challenge, mm. the talent needs to have a place to go. And yeah. so once you know that there is someone accepting stories, it's going to encourage people. It wasn't just Alice Munro. It was, you know, it was Carol Shields. It was... Mavis Gallant. It, she, well, she's mentioned in the book. Yes. Having probably uh, contributed uh, something. But m many, many writers across the country mm. uh, were uh, Janice Kulik-Kiefer, um, the younger people. They, then there were, we haven't talked about the competition, the CBC competition, which, right. be which became a sort of a retirement, almost a retirement project uh, for Bob. It became something that he did towards the end of his career and is still a very important uh, cultural event mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in this country. Well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a way really to get, uh, say, the masses, but a, a big audience involved in reading. The CBC Prize is, is a way for unpublished material to, to be noticed. It, it's not a prize given for something that you've written somewhere else. It's you submit... And it it makes a huge difference in the writer's life. I know because I you know I I I, I won That's it right. at the time. What year was that that you won? It, it? Um, 1998, I think. I I submitted the story in 1997, and and uh, the award was in 1998. Congratulations! Thank you. It was a very big deal. Yeah. It was a very big deal. Yeah. yeah, he. I think he set that up in '79. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, but he was still. That, that's how I met Bob. I had, oh, okay. I had met him at an earlier event, uh, an earlier CBC prize-giving event. Uh, uh, actually, my sister had won the prize a couple of years before. Right. Uh, and I, I was there, and I had just begun to, to work on an ideas documentary, not, about, not, not the one about Bob. He came, he came across to say hello to me because he knew my producer who had worked with him a hundred years ago and said, oh, I understand you're doing uh, an ideas documentary. Please say hello to my dear friend, Jane Lewis. So, but I was there because my sister had won this prize. It was a huge thing. And then uh, a couple of years later, I did. Like, There's quite a bit of competition between you sisters. No, it's, we just like to follow in each other's footsteps. <laughs> it was a big career boost, mm -hmm. very big career boost. And, and certain people for, you know, certain people who are, I think, Ondaatje won it. I mean, like everybody's won that prize. Many mm -hmm. people have won that prize. 
I'd love to be able to listen to some of these shows. Is, are they available on the CBC archive? I'm sure or? they are. I don't know. I mean, but I'm, wouldn't I'm it be sure, great to have I, those up I, on the internet? Uh, well, I don't know how you go about doing that, mm. but you would uh, contact somebody at, at, the, at yeah. the CBC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there may, there may be a, a fee attached to it. Somebody, somebody contacted me. What's his name? Nick, somebody, uh, professor. He just or Nick Mount. Yes. Yeah, I interviewed yeah. Nick uh, Did, not that long ago. Yeah, so he had he had been doing some research about Bob, and he wrote to me saying that you know I had said that such and such a show appeared on you know at such and such a date, but he read somewhere else in the in the archives that it appeared on such. A, so I you know, I would have no way of knowing. So it but it seems like you can do. You can get a hold you can, of it you can get a get a hold of this sort of thing. You know, okay. I think it it always, in my opinion, helps to to find a human being to ask questions from, which is not so easy. But speaking of your writing, just in in winding down here, I've noticed I noticed that you've written a book on Notman, yes, the the Montreal based uh, photographer, and it's quite salacious. Not salacious, but uh, but but scandalous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, okay. It, 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 it's not the the scandal was in William Notman's family, but it wasn't about William Notman. Okay. Okay. It's called. It's also a very cool press book. It's called Portrait of a Scandal: The Abortion Trial of Robert Notman, and uh, it's it's a story that happened uh, in 1868 in Montreal. A very interesting story that that was covered, massively covered by all the papers of the day, but that that story died out completely until I, Dug I, it up, I yeah. feel I, I, well, I stumbled on it. I wasn't digging it up. I, I, I literally fell, fell over the story while I was doing a, an ideas documentary about the life of William Notman. And I asked like a, a, just a throwaway kind of question, were there any mm-hmm. black sheep in the Notman family? And out came this black sheep. And, and there began a, a, a story in which I strained my eyes and broke my back over microfilm readers while I was like digging. Uh, then I was digging. Uh, so yeah. this wasn't Notman himself? It no, was... it was his brother. Okay. It, it, was, it was his brother, and mm. his brother was a photographer as well and worked okay. with him. And there is the, the book is also about William Notman because there's an awful lot of value added to the story by the story of of, of uh, William Notman and and his family and his and his photography business, mm-hmm. but it, it the main nitty gritty of the book focuses on this trial, which included a suicide, which included an abortion, which included like scandal, which included like uh, a whole pile of stuff about um, social mores of the time, which we are almost completely unaware of because abortion was a whole lot more common then than it is now. Hmm. A whole lot more common. Yeah, well, didn't have the pill. Didn't have the pill. Mm -hmm. uh, And and human nature was what it is and what it's always been. And and, and having a child out of wedlock was a lot more serious. Scandalous, yeah. Well, it, it, anyway. So yeah, yeah. I, I that is uh, that was the book after Bob and the book before the the Book of Faith. 
And that's your first novel, The Book of Faith. The Book of Faith is the first, not my first novel. But several of my titles, including Portrait of a Scandal, are in sort of the mode of creative nonfiction and use a lot of the techniques of, of fiction. Page Turner. Well, I like to think so. Just finally, uh, it's been a while since you wrote this book. It was published in 2007, so more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Anything come up in the meantime but, uh, about Bob Weaver that you've well, learned? or uh... No. Bob died just as the book came out. And, right. and, and the, what was supposed to be have been the, the launch for this book turned out to be a, 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 major, a major tribute event to Bob in Toronto. It was really, really nice. It was mm. at, uh, at Massey College and uh, many, many people were there. Uh, Margaret Atwood was there and there were others. And, and there were major stories about Bob's life at that time, mentioning, mentioning this book. But no, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, his, his wife is a very quiet person. Uh, I really, being in Montreal, I don't know, but what I think is, you know, I think Bob has an enduring legacy. He has an enduring legacy. It, it, it may not be something that we talk about every day because we, we take so much of Canlit for granted today, which we shouldn't because it, it, with all the changes in the literary uh, scene and the marketplace and so on, I'm sure that Canlit will go on and is going on, but it is a much more challenging period now for us than it was in the time that I won my prize and others. But but there is there there's a whole foundation and a whole infrastructure to Canadian literature that wasn't there when Bob came on the scene in 1949, which is now almost 70 years ago, as a you know as a young man. The young man who sort of came along and godfathered Canadian literature uh, to make a verb out of a, a noun, which one one shouldn't really do. I don't think he Shakespeare would. did it fairly often. <laughs> I'm not Shakespeare, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for writing the book, Robert Weaver, Godfather of Canadian Literature, published by Miocule Press and for keeping this really important, beautiful person's name alive. Let people buy the book and let them appreciate him. He was really a very wonderful human being and, and a great patron to, to our culture. I've been speaking with Elaine Kalman-Naves in Montreal. Thanks again. Thank you.